And we direct your attention to the Word of God, to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord has just finished teaching the Beatitudes in our text. And now he uses two metaphors, two strong metaphors, and tells the disciples that they are the salt of the earth and that they are the light of the world. And let's pick it up there in that passage in 13 and hear our Lord's words. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first of these metaphors, salt, we looked at last week, and it contemplates the decay, the corruption, the absolute filth and destruction that is inherent in a sinful humanity and seeing that it all is bound in sin, destined to be corrupt and to decay. And there must be some salt, something that preserves, something that protects, something that enables it to become um, sanitized and disinfected and is able to survive. And we saw the principle as we ended that the Lord does this by using a remnant that is in a world filled with corrupt and decaying sinners, the Lord's calls to himself, justifies, sanctifies, cleans up, straightens up a number, a number of men and women. And he's done this now throughout all of history. He did it in the days of Noah. He did it in the days of Abraham. He did it in the days of Moses. This is how God works. God calls and to himself a remnant. They're called those who've gathered together, the synagogue. They are called those who have been called out of the corrupt world, the ecclesia, the church. The second metaphor that he uses is the metaphor of light, and that's the one we look at today. Light contemplates the darkness. The darkness is always symbolic of ignorance, filth, decay and corruption, sin, alienation, loneliness, wandering, lostness, stumbling in the darkness. And this is what the believers are to a world that is in that condition. We are the light of the world. We shed forth the light. And we do it only because it is derivative. We receive what light we have from Jesus Christ who himself said, I am the light of the world. You remember last week I mentioned in John how there were those great miracles that Jesus did. And then there were those great I am sayings. Well, this was one of them. Jesus healed a well-known 
blind man, recorded in John chapter 9. A man who everybody knew he had been blind from birth. He was an extreme case. And the Lord healed him. He gave him back his sight. And the Lord said, I am the light of the world. Just like he raised Lazarus and said, I'm the resurrection and the light. Just because he fed the 5,000 and said, I am the bread of life. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the one who has come into this pit of darkness that is the cosmos, the world. Two different words. Salt of the earth is the word for earth. It's gay. The word that's used here, the light of the world, as opposed to earth, the world, is the word cosmos. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16 where it says, God so loved the world. It's not the cosmos in terms of its entirety with the heavens and earth and all that in them dwells, but it is the humanity, the population of the earth. And he calls us to be light. And he says the absurdity of trying to hide that light is manifested in two other metaphors. One is the city that is set upon a hill. Now that was not uncommon in the ancient world. It was a place on the hill was a, a good place to live because you had access to great defenses and great sites and then you could also have the land in the hill country would be for building whereas the the plains and the slopes would be better for agriculture it was a good use of the property but a city that's set on a hill cannot be hid you can see it walking from any direction from miles away as you approach the city and that's the way we are we stand out whether we like it or not we stand out as a glowing city on a hill. And then he uses a much smaller, kind of a micro example. And that is the example of a lamp, a simple indoor lamp. Nobody takes a lamp and what little bit of light it gives and puts it, hides it under a bushel. And this word that's used here basically is the Roman word for that bushel basket of measurement. Technically, it was about the size of a peck, but it's called a bushel. And uh, it, is, it is there to obscure the light. Nobody does that. The whole point of having a lamp burning is that it may give light to the indoors, light to the room. So the light in the outdoors, the light in the indoors, wherever we are, whether we are going in or out, we're the light of the world. <clears throat> the Lord always called us to that. Let me reference back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. Here's a passage that the Lord applies, of course, to himself, and then by projection, he applies it to us. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. He put this azure canopy over the earth, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. In other words, it's a great azure canopy. It is a great verde carpet. And then it is a throng of living people 
living on the earth and under the sky. What a, what a beautiful poetic way of talking about what is called in our Greek text the cosmos. All of it, heaven above, earth beneath, and all the throng, the people that are living on it. I am the Lord. There's an I am saying. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and the prison from those who sit in darkness. That's the call. The Lord says, I'm going to make you a light. You're going to be a light to the nations. I have called you in righteousness. What makes us a light to the nation is we have a, a sheen. We have a shine to us. And that shine is the holiness and the glory of God. It has been worked in us by God's work in justification and in sanctification. God is taking us out of the filth and out of the dark, cleaning us up, shining us up, making us something that can be seen, something that has a spotlight shining upon it. God's making us what the New Testament calls a peculiar people. Now that doesn't mean you can get away with just being weird as you possibly can be. Some Christians think that's what being a Christian is all about. Now, you're going to be peculiar enough. Peculiar means particular to the possession of someone. And that's what God has called us to, to be a peculiar people, zealous for what? Good works. And that's what the text says. In order that people might see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Now, Jesus later in this particular Sermon on the Mount is going to talk about ostentatious good works. He's going to talk about the Pharisees that pray and that give alms and that, that do all of these things so that they can be seen of men. But here the Lord is not talking about being seen of, seen of men in that sense. Because basically that's pretentious. What he's talking about is being seen of men because of our distinctive character, our good works, our holiness, our honesty, our humility, our mercy, our caring, our love, our peacefulness, and just go through the whole list of the virtues of the Christian life. Paul lists them, Peter lists them. John says the whole world lies in darkness, but we do what? We walk in the light as he is in the light. And when we do that, we stand out. We send out a beam, a beacon that can be seen and can be understood. And the good works that are, that are mentioned are, are those things that are overt good works. We'll get a little more to this later, but the Pharisees love to be seen praying in their great machinations as they prayed. And they love to be seen giving the money that they would give. And they love to be seen of, of men. The Lord stands consistent at that. We don't need to show off to the world our prayers. We don't need to show off to the world our giving, our generosity. We don't need to show off to the world anything of our Christian virtues. We just need to live right, live according to God's character. Not only his commandments, 
which are very familiar and very broad and basic, and we all should know them, we all should keep them. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But how that commandment bear fruit in our lives, that the Spirit of God within our souls can keep the law and enable us to keep those commandments and bear that fruit. Not just simply not commit adultery, for example, but to promote life and marriage and wholesome families and godly uh, unions for long periods of time, whole lifetimes, one man, one woman, bringing forth godly children and, and, and establishing godliness in the community. That's what we're called to. So I have called you in righteousness. Um, some people think that we Calvinists just say, well, we're chosen. We know we're chosen. We can just live any way we want to. We can do whatever we want to. We understand about something about our call. We are called in righteousness. If you're living your life in any measure of unrighteousness, don't you come talking to me about the perseverance of the saints and once saved, always saved and all your five points of Calvinism. You need to constantly be realized that your call is to walk in the light. You're called in righteousness. That's the, that's the burden that is upon us. And then parallel to that and not too much different is the uh, passage in 49 verse 6. Isaiah 49 verse 6. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. If that first verse in Isaiah set the first main point of our sermon, and that is good works, well then this passage sets the second part of our sermon concerning being the light of the world, and that is the good news. This is gospel proclamation. It's good works that people can see in our lives, but it doesn't just stop there. It moves to us proclaiming, heralding, promulgating the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to a dark stumbling, lost, blind, ignorant, sinful humanity. A great throng, a great mass of people that just simply haven't seen the light yet. And they want until the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shines forth in them. Paul says this best in 2 Corinthians he said, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1-3. For the God that said, let the light shine out of darkness with respect to the creation. 
God who said, let light shine out of darkness, now speaks in terms of the new creation. It is a let there be light that brought light to the creation, but it is a let there be light, the light to the soul that brings the new creation. And this is the gospel. But God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's a lot there that we can see, but we see this notion that's in our text, this idea of the glory of God. That when we shine in our holy living, in our good living, in our consistent Christian character, we glorify God. We bring glory to His name. Because believe me, most of those people who are living in darkness really have no clue about God. They have some primitive, pagan, superstitious, pseudo-intellectual notion of who God is, if not just outright blasphemies against God. We're the ones that bring clarity, that bring light, that bring definition to the situation. One of the things that's said in Isaiah, we won't read it, but there's two famous passages where the Lord says to the people, you are my witnesses. That's in the Old Testament. You are my witnesses. That's what the whole calling of Israel was all about, to make them witnesses to the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. What did Jesus say just before he ascended? You are my witnesses. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So our good works glorify God. And the good news, the good word, sheds the light of the gospel to all humanity. And if we don't spread it, it won't be spread. Who's going to spread the gospel the good news of the saving grace of God, the finished work of Christ, the glory of the atonement, the majesty of a life perfectly lived, a man wrongfully executed yet bearing the sins of his people, and someone raised miraculously and gloriously for the Who's going to tell that story? What, what is that meta narrative going to have as a spokesperson if not humble little everyday people like me and you? This is exactly our calling. And then as we close, let me just look at a very familiar passage. It's in Matthew, and this is kind of the overall theme of these messages that we have, because this is under the umbrella of the Great Commission. But let me read the passage as we close there in uh, Matthew chapter 28. This is at the very end, just before Jesus' ascension. It says, now the 11 disciples, there's 11 well, of course, Judas has committed suicide, and they haven't tarried in Jerusalem and had that uh, occasion where they've elected Matthias to be the twelfth disciple, to the bishop, to take Judas's office. So there's eleven of them, and the scriptures properly note it. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. By the way, if I was a preacher, I'd stop and preach right there. When they saw him, they worshipped him. 
If you ever get a glimpse of Christ loving you, living for you, dying for you, raised in power for you, and coming to receive you unto himself that where he is there you may be also. If you ever get a glimpse of any of that, it'll take you to your knees. And you won't worry about a whole lot of other doctrine and a whole lot of other things. You won't worry about the world things. You won't worry a whole lot about what's going on down at church. Because you'll be so enthralled with Christ himself. Okay, I'll stop there. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And if you don't think there's doubt in worship, you haven't really worshipped. The whole point of doubt is to bring you to the solid convictions. Ask old Thomas one day when you see him in heaven how he worked through his doubt and how the Lord overcame his doubt and how his doubt turned into rock-ribbed, concrete, base belief. But Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am, I am, another I am saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice one thing that frames up that little, we call the Great Commission passage, is these words, authority and commanded. You see, when we're in the church, we're in a church militant. We're under a command. We have a king. We have a commander. We have a Lord, a true kurios, a true Lord, just as much in the ancient world as Caesar or any other potentate was Lord. And he has been given, granted all authority. So we work under his authority. We take orders from him. We march in his army. We respond to his call, and we are doulos, we are servants. If we ever get a real good idea of what a kurios is, that is a commander, and what a doulos is, that is what is a slave, a bond slave, a servant willing to give everything, including his life, to his master, to his kurios, it'll change the way we think about our Christian living. All authority in heaven and earth, and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And the two imperatives, the two main words in there, the main one is to make disciples. Make disciples. And that's really what the Christian life is all about, is the making of disciples. It's not building big organizations, it's not running denominations. It's not filling and building big church buildings. It is making disciples. All of our efforts should be put into living stones, into people, bringing them along in the faith so that they are operative in the work of the Lord. Everything else is wood, hay, stubble, and we've left behind and will not survive the great fire of the eschaton, according to 1 Peter, I mean 2 Peter. So there we have the parameters. Making disciples is the Great Commission. And it is making disciples by doing two things. Baptizing 
and teaching. Baptizing is that initiation. It is that which is done upon profession of faith. It is that which is done because they're part of the covenant community. It is the watermark that God puts upon a soul. You can't see it, but God can see it. It's the seal upon the soul, baptism. And every believer should be baptized. And all believers in the New Testament were baptized. And that's what God expects. That marks us to be His. But then, teaching. Teaching is not something that is always heralded with great showmanship. Most good teaching takes place in a context of slow, deliberate, repetitive instruction. Not in a great, big performance. Let me suggest to you that some of the very best teaching that the world has ever known takes place in one-on-one teaching, tutoring. And that's what Paul said to young Timothy. He says, the things that thou hast learned of me, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall teach others also. And that's how the faith is spread. It's not spread with great dynamic worship services. It is not spread by great meetings in great stadiums. It is spread by little old people like me and you who know the gospel, who have a light to shine, do it every day, wherever we are, with whomever we see and speak, bringing them along in the things of God. If they know not the gospel, our message is gospel-saturated. If they know and believe the gospel, it is a word fitly spoken, seasoned with salt for their edification. That's what the Lord calls and expects of us. That's what he's talking about when he says we're the light of the world. Good works and good news 